I work for a place called True Directions who help people like yourself learn to understand the reasons behind homosexual tendencies and, and how to heal them. What tendencies? Why would you think I'm a... You've been trying to make us eat this tofu. In diet, watch for a switch to vegetarianism. You don't have any pictures of guys in your locker, just these. Mm-hmm. These. Sexual. Even vaginal motifs in artwork and decorating. Gay iconography. You don't even like to kiss me. It's, it's true. true. I can't believe this. Denial is a normal part of the healing process that we'll explore at True Directions. Healing? Like rehab, honey. Uh, Homosexuals Anonymous. Poodle, it's only for a few months. There is no way I'm going. Queer cinema over the past few years has forged a deep love affair with the coming-of-age narrative. Gay relationships and teenage angst go hand-in-hand hand like peanut butter and jelly. However, recent LGBTQ plus films are offering a limited view of the queer experience, one that is white, male, and young, exposing their first and awkward, sometimes emotionally potent forays into queer sex and intimacy, many times open without fear of reprisal. This month's episode is dedicated to the films and characters who grapple with the conflict between who they are and what society expects them to be as they slowly find their place in the world. But more than that, they push the boundaries of the narrative. What is each country's legacy with regards to queer liberation? How does this context shape the experiences of characters? Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, have a, I have a perfect face for radio. <laughs> Um, so welcome, welcome, we're going to edit this part. Welcome, um, to Beyond Bisexual Lighting. I'm Carolina. And I'm Alex. And this is episode two of a multi-part. Yes, we're going to be doing a multi-part series. Because there are several movies. Yeah, we can't <laughs> even un- unpack it. That have to do with this. Of coming of, of age films. Um, so... Yeah. Um, this was a really hard theme to sort of wind down. That's why we're doing a multi-series. It feels like this is just such a vast, vast thing. We wanted to narrow it down to three for this month, including um, one from the United States, one from Kenya, and one from South Korea. And what's interesting about these these specific films without realizing it um well first of all these three films um jamie babbitt's but i'm a cheerleader wanuri Caillou's rafiki that was released in 2019 and kim bora's house of hummingbird released in 2018 they're films all three films directed by women uh, all three films we've noticed definitely reflected on what were the societal norms and definitely pushed back against those societal norms, um, both within different lenses. And, and we're going to talk about that today, uh, specifically that context, 
within each country and their legacy when it comes to queer rights, queer liberation. Yeah, let's get started. Yeah. First on the docket, we have But I'm a Cheerleader. Oh, But I'm a Cheerleader. I feel like when people think of queer U.S. movies, this is one of the first. This is like, this is essential viewing. What is it? What is was that phrase like the the there's like a phrase that's like the the things in your life that make you queer like that thing that turns on the switch and I think this, this definitely was that film. Well, they literally talk about that. They're talking about the roots. The roots. Yep. <clears throat> yep. The, the roots, roots. And, and but I'm a cheerleader. For those of you who have not seen it, which you should because it's 2021 and we're still talking about the the legacy of this movie. Um, it's directed by Jamie Babbitt, written by Brian Wayne Peterson, made in 1999, starring the super young Natasha Leon, who we know from beautiful shows like Russian Dolls, um, Orange is the New Black, and she's really kind of made herself known to be the big like queer icon she is today. I think it's super special the way that her career has sort of evolved. And, and Clea Duvall also stars uh, in it. And I think we've seen Clea Duvall in so many 90s films. I think uh, Clea Duvall is definitely one of the, the, I would say, icons of the 90s when you think of teen angst films. Um, we also have RuPaul um, as... Uh, she plays my it's and I should clarify this it's RuPaul Charles at that time RuPaul did not go by just the um first name kind of prince this is type. wait post no sorry pre 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 RuPaul's Drag Race yeah this is pre RuPaul's Drag Race but um post Party Monster <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Party <laughs> Monster <laughs> anyway he plays the gay camp counselor Mike, um, I I love his I, I I love I love his acting in this. Um, then you have Melanie Linsky, who I feel like most people when like they hear the name Melanie Linsky, the name doesn't come up, but then you'll realize that you've seen so many films with her. Right. Um, we'll be talking about another coming of age film that she also stars in um, later on. Later on, next month. Heavling uh, creatures. Heavling creatures. Because um, she's from New Zealand. Yeah. and But she's she's been in so many different movies throughout the 90s and beyond. And then I always wanted to add this because I think this is my favorite scene and the root within the root. Uh, Julie Delpy. Um, from the before movies? From from the, yeah. Before, <laughs> from before, before Sunrise? Yeah. From the Sunrise movies. Um and her with Ethan Hawke her name is is literally as as lipstick lesbian in the credits in the credits that's her <laughs> name at the credits and it, and it and it and it makes sense which same yeah and um just to give a brief synopsis the the film we miss somebody really important who do we miss we miss somebody we were just talking about who was in Casper and Casper the witch. Oh my God. Um, oh. Kathy Moriarty. <laughs> Kathy Moriarty. You know, and her like raspy voice, and where she like sounds like she smoked like three packs of cigarettes before she started acting. 
like for the day it's just to get ready for that like sexy sort of raspy voice like the jennifer coolidge voice I, that, that's what i love about kathy Moriarty is that it's it's and she was in raging bull and she was also yeah i mean like have you seen raging bull and but and we'll talk about that there's a raging bull reference within but i'm a cheerleader <laughs> basically this film is so natasha leone stars as megan she's this like really peppy like bring it on type cheerleader super hyper feminine and she's like dating the captain of the football team and all of a sudden she goes through an intervention and her parents like set it up to prove that she is a lesbian and they send her to essentially a conversion therapy camp or you'll once you see the film visually you'll see it's a satire of what would be like a conversion therapy camp um she eventually starts to get to know who she really is and and falls in love and and starts ex getting to understand uh her 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 herself and her queerness yeah this was after like the self-acceptance that she comes to eventually is met with a lot of resistance against her even sort of coming to the realization that she is a lesbian because and quite literally with the title but i'm a cheerleader like how could i be a lesbian i have a beautiful like life i have all of the right things that I need to have to fit into this sort of heteronormative society. I have a boyfriend. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a good student. I have, um, you know, this life set up where why, how, why would I be gay? Why would I be a lesbian? It just doesn't match. Um, until then she goes to the camp and she realizes she's met with a lot of people who also were in those stages of like denial, resistance. And then when they accepted it, that's when they would embrace themselves more. And that's where she started to embrace herself as a lesbian and as a teen lesbian. Um, really sort of like meeting these temptations. Yeah, there's it's so kind of to give a little bit more of the uh, production background. Uh, Jamie Babbitt, who directed it, had come from like a very 90s-esque background um, with the types of films that she had done. Um, definitely in terms of more camp, campy uh, versed uh, content. But she, she partnered with screenwriter Brian Wayne Peterson, um, who they shared both of their experiences. Um, basically, Brian, Brian Wayne Peterson was a gay man and he was drafting this narrative about a gay cowboy. This is be before um, before Brokeback Mountain. So, I mean, 1999. And before Lil Nas X. And before Lil Nas X, yeah. So no, no like, Old Town Road back then. <laughs> um, but um, both Jamie Babbitt and Peterson had experiences within conversion therapy. Um Peterson, um, as itself, he had to he had to um, deal with conversion therapy, working with uh, sex offenders, specifically. So it's a very very gruel, traumatizing experience, um, and one that is constantly you're questioning the narrative, the social narrative that's in place. Uh, Babbitt also had experiences from 
her roles as as in conversion therapy with regards to alcoholism um, and um, in regards to addiction, substance abuse. And so it's really interesting because they they kind of it, it's they frame that weird metric when you see it, like in the mm-hmm. in the camp, like this twelve step program. It's like hilarious in that sense because they have like the five steps and what you have to do and when you check them off. Right. And they quite literally lay it out like they have a chart. And that's very much like the the twelve step program. That's like very, very faith based and very guilt based as as well. Right. Like um, the first step in the list is to admit that you're gay or that you're a lesbian or that you're queer, and then you can move on to not being that way. Um, and converting into the heterosexual person that you should be. Um, I found, because this is a funny movie, but I'm a cheerleader is like kind of, as much as the content is about conversion camps and really direct homophobia, it's also really funny. And it's very, very campy. It's very tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, but I feel like it doesn't lessen, I mean like, I feel like if, if anything, it only clarifies the sheer cruelty, not just cruelty, but also the sheer absurdity of it all. It's super absurd. I mean, when they have this scene where part of the list is like getting back into your gender roles that are assigned to you. Oh, yeah. So they make the girls, the the five of them, go and learn how to clean, learn how to cook, they're dressed in all pink. Mm-hmm. The set design, the art direction is very, very visually artificial and artificial and very but, but on purpose, yeah. So you'll see that a lot of the set design in terms of like the camp rooms, the girls sleep in all all in one room in their own separate beds and their separate beds are these silky pink sheets. I think there's like a heart shaped like headboard or is them in there's they wear these pink nightgowns which it's it's funny because when you when you think of that i almost feel like when i watched that scene i i i almost felt like this was almost kind of setting up for a, a porn in some sense that sort of like artificiality because i feel like sometimes really bad porn also has that artificiality of yeah. gender identity yeah, um for sure and I feel like that's that was the campiness of it is that it was like obviously this was very sexualized, um, or um, the first step, which is the first step, is admitting that you are homosexual, and the the proof, the burden of proof that they had against Megan, the cheerleader, Natasha Leone's character, was that she was a vegetarian. That was which they're not wrong there. I mean, that, that she joke itself. That she loves M- Melissa Etheridge. <laughs> she has a Melissa Etheridge poster <laughs> in her room above her bed. <laughs> when, to be fair, the the soundtrack, which I I, I really enjoy the soundtrack. It's um, so good. It's really really good. Um, the the soundtrack is definitely out of like a little affair. Yeah, it's like a lot of Riot Girl. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of Peter Kinney. 90s, like Mazzy Star S. It's beautiful. Yeah, I recommend it. And then the other, so it was, yeah, it was, it was those two things. What else was that? 
But like, just it was a lot of based on 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 stereotypes. Of course, and they sort of like amplify those and blow them up and like exploit the stereotypes. So like, this is all sort of shown through a really candy colored lens. These like backdrops of like everything is this fluorescent hot pink in the room for the girls specifically, and then for the boys who are also there because there's about five of them. They are dressed in all blue, this like really pastel Easter egg color blue. And they are also like put through this conversion camp and have to abide by their gender role. So they like, RuPaul's character like teaches them how to fix cars. And it's all in like a really like homoerotic lens. Because you see like that, first of all, they're, 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 Outfits they have to wear, their their costumes are out of a fucking porno as well. Like they're like, they're like short shorts, tight well, shorts that show their like and these like cut off shirts that show their midriff and and then like in in one of the scenes, there's I mean we and you see throughout the five step program they go through there's a lot of sexual tension. Uh, Absolutely within the. The young people. And the camp counselor. So RuPaul's character, Mike. Um, I think I, what, I, what I love about Mike as a character is that I think he... When we, when, when we think of conversion therapy, we don't realize that most of the people that work within conversion therapy are, you, are people that went through the system. They, they, they went through the system. Because of the, those are the ones that actually like buy the system. And say, okay, I'm cured. And I think that RuPaul does it so well. Kind of that sort of very blatant denial. Um, But obviously there is that like tension that's there. Um, And he's uh, the son. The son of Kathy Moriarty's character who she she runs the the conversion center. they they start having, yeah they start hooking up. <laughs> that guy I know. Do you you remember the country singer Leanne Rhymes? Yeah, that's her husband. For real? Like the Eddie Sabran? Yeah, <laughs> that's her husband. I was like, where have I seen that guy? Yeah, that's. I don't know if y'all know who Leanne Rhymes is, but she is mm. a country singer. <laughs> Nothing to do with this, but it's related to one of the, the the, actors. Um, so yeah, and, um, kind of a little bit fast forward, um, so obviously there's, part of it is Megan's blossoming, you know, as this, as this, like, blossoming queer woman in terms of exploring her sexuality, um, there's, like, scenes of masturbation, she goes to, like, her first queer bar, and then she stumbles into this relationship with another member, um, Graham, who's played by Clea Duvall, who comes from, like, a very different background, definitely more punky. Super privileged. Yes, privileged little punk. Um, super typical, like, her parents are threatening her with, the trust fund that she would get if she would just be straight, then she could have it. And so there's like this big pressure for her to con- 
tied to this because she wants to be taken care of. And that's all she knows. Yeah. Which I found to be a, a really funny like part because then the, all those scenes were like, they invite the parents to come in and the parents are all very hostile and very angry and very confused at like, not only that their children are going through this, but that like there are things going on within the camp that they don't agree with. Yeah. And I think the, I mean, the whole unpacking of the root, I mean, that's essentially, I mean, that's family therapy. And that's like, it. I think it unpacks, you know, when they talk about a, a, the root, they talk about like Melissa Etheridge or going to boarding school, very stereotypical. But as you see these more family dynamics, you realize that it's each, each, each child that's there because they're essentially high schoolers goes through a different type of family dynamic and 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 i think it really highlights that sort of fear that was present in in being disowned Mm -hmm. um because we have to think about this is 1999 and while yes there were queer films that were coming out um what all the all the queer films that came out of like ninety nine? We were looking at the list of movies that came out in nineteen ninety nine across the board. A lot of them are these like dramas, really intense, dark backdrops, like Boys Don't Cry. Or, you know, another movie that was really prevalent was Cruel Intentions, which I have always found to be super erotic in like a male gaze sense, mm-hmm. for displaying what um, lesbians like visually do for a male audience um then we have like the matrix which we now know as like a super substantial film written by a trans woman um these are all films that are super action-based and intense and really like dark moody yeah so then we get this film like but i'm a cheerleader that's completely opposite like these really like bright fluorescent set designs this really like kind of campy aesthetic and then it's a satire on what conversion camp looks like um it's really straightforward and it's just really kind of i don't know so different so different from like a lot of the films that were coming out of that year i think it's also like a what i what I like about its essence is that I think also through its humor and through its campiness, I think it, I think it pays homage to especially a lot of the predecessors within queer liberation movements. I think the scene where I, so, so the camp is called true directions, but I, there's like an alternative camp that also exists that's run by this gay couple and they want to show the other side like they they want to introduce these children and show them that they they can exist being themselves completely themselves and that there's a community that will love and support them and what i love is like they dress up like military like like warriors Mm -hmm. and i think that that was i i thought that was a really beautiful homage especially when you think of a lot of the queer liberation activists that of like the 80s, uh, the 70s and 80s that went through um, hate crimes, that went through 
um, being murdered. I mean, I mean, this was like coming off like the AIDS crisis. I mean, a lot of them, I, I, I do say are, are, are warriors. And I think that that's, it's funny because when they interviewed Jimmy Babbitt, she was like a lot of older gay men were really offended because they like, they're like, you're not taking this seriously. But I think, I think she was paying homage to, to them personally. Yeah, I mean, there's a scene where when we're introduced to this other community where um, some of the teens, like, go out at night to go to this gay club. And that's where yeah. we meet the lipstick lesbian. Um, mm-hmm. And... Yeah, and... Um, I did kind of see it as that, like, having to really carve out your own space and your own community... Um, it was quite literal, like, what did they say? Like, the Underground Railroad of gay people? Yeah. Something like that. Because, yeah, you quite literally do have to sort of sneak around. Because it is still dangerous. I mean, 1999 wasn't so long ago. But it was a completely different times in terms of what gay sentence was looked was looking like i mean in the states like we're looking at the united states specifically what this was like post ellen right Ellen was ellen like around that time coming out ellen came out in 97 Ah. and her show got canceled around that time right when she came out so ellen degeneres for who she is now actually in 1997 it was a big deal for her to come out yeah it was huge we think of ellen we think like oh she got canceled but when when ellen came out and and I think that was the other thing too is that you had you know you had Ellen which at that time was a you know really big deal, but also Ellen still fit that sort of uh, stereotype of the of butch the butch the butch basically yeah. I mean was and which also I think is interesting because um, but I'm a cheerleader there's also a character that I I would say, and I, I wouldn't want to impose on the gender of this person because it's never implied, but I would say that this person would expresses themselves, their gender, very differently. And the whole time they think that this person, I forget their name. I don't remember as either. Um, they think that this person's a lesbian, so they always, like... They get them to dress up and they get them to do all, you know, all the other aspects. And they keep saying, no, but I'm not like, I'm, I'm not gay. I'm not a lesbian. I like men. Um, but it's because of the way that the character uh, presents themselves, basically. It's Jan. It's Jan. Jan. Jan's the name. Jan. Yeah. Yeah, so talking about like the late 90s, early 2000s, like these topics were, forget even having trans representation, forget it, like there was nothing like that. So for this film that was like talking about young people being gay, um, it was pretty subversive for its time. Still, that's why I think it's been like such a widely talked about, like widely raved cult classic um because it because it was kind of one of its kind in its in its state in 1999 in the united states i think speaking speaking of that sort of kind of 
campish, like hyper femininity. I think that also shares a lot in common with this, with the next film that we'll talk about, which is Rafiki. Um, I mean, Rafiki is like basically like a color, like when you see the, the photography, it's like a color bomb explosion. It's super, super, super colorful. Saturated. It's saturated. There's a lot of really nice, beautiful, like pink hues. Um, and I think, I think as well, it also, um, it does address that sort of like artificiality uh, of gender identity. Um, but what I enjoy about it is that, and I think the more I started reading up about this film was the, how it would also incorporate uh, aesthetically a lot of uh, Kenyan elements uh, as well. I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about what Rafiki, what Rafiki is about. Right, so Rafiki came out in 2019 in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, directed and written by Wanuri Kayu. This film stars Samantha Mugatsia, Mugatsia who plays Kenna, who is the protagonist. And um, Sheila Muvia, Uziki, who's the other protagonist. I would say that they share as much spotlight as the other. Yeah. Um, and it's basically these two daughters of political rivals from different socio-political backgrounds. Um, Ken and Ziki resist conservative norms and remain close friends, supporting each other to pursue their own dreams. And then they fall in love. Their love blossoms. And the two girls have to be kind of confronted with the outright homophobia in their communities, the violence, the hate crimes, and kind of choose if they want to be safe and happy and how they do that. Yeah, it's... Um, so to kind of give context, Kenna... I, w I would say like Kenna is more portrayed as the more masculine character but again i think when you understand this and as a, more as i understand more of the con kenyan context um i don't i wouldn't even say that kenna is that stereotypical like butch that we would see um i think there's a lot of what i really enjoyed about it was there were um death, it was not kind of the stereotypical dynamic um you know lesbian dynamic um, but Kenna comes more from a working class, um, deals with her own route, which is um, basically her her father who is running to be basically city council member uh, for the area. Um, their parents are divorced. He's having a, a child out of wedlock, which again, understanding that this is Kenya, this is still Kenya it's a it's in very many aspects a very religious country um it, a lot of that is very controversial and then Kenna meets Ziki who comes from a more privileged background she's traveled around the world she's um explored other countries um she's a lot more feminine presenting she's a lot more like very very vibrant very open we see when they meet the first scene when they meet um she's with her friends they're dancing they're expressing themselves they're laughing they're having a good time 
and then we see Ziggy really alone, subdued, shy. And so we see these different personalities really kind of like butt heads at the beginning because they like don't really know how to interact with each other. But I think that there is this sort of like magnetism that they do want to like, they're curious about each other, right? And they just so happen to have similar backgrounds in, in which their their fathers are running against each other. It's, um, I think it, as well, because they, they are, even within the context of Kenyan society, they are, like, they're, 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 even with, for example, and in the case of Ziki, even though she comes, is more traditionally feminine, etc., she, she's, at first instance, more, um, out, more outspoken. I see a lot of, actually, now that I think about it, parallels with Graham and Megan from I'm a Cheerleader, in the sense that, like, Graham also comes from the privileged background, more outspoken at first, but also falls under pressure from from family, um, from being disowned. Uh, there's a lot more kind of pressure on the line in terms of societal norms. There. Yeah, I mean, they are pressure to keep up with appearances. The both of them. Yeah. Like, there is absolutely no, no tolerance for any type of affection towards someone of the same sex. No, absolutely, that cannot get to other, like that cannot be known that these two are having a relationship or blooming into a relationship. Yeah, but at the same time, I I think that it, there's like an added advantage in the fact that they're young. I think like because it, I think that because for example they are younger, they're able to at least get away with a little bit more. Right. Yeah, they can sort of like develop their friendship first because publicly it's accepted that they're friends. They can go out you know, to parties together, they can, like, go out to dance, dance and... I think, yeah, I think, and I think that's one of the things that when when I first saw it, I was like, oh, they can't do anything. But then when I started to read more about, like, Kenyan culture and how Kenyan culture just in general, like, not in general, but, like, in, in, in the sense of how it's been represented in film... Um, they're not they're not as many many scenes that involve intimacy in the sense of like intimacy is a very sacred thing that is not easily exposed and i think they're musing their the fact that they're young women that they're able to hold hands and everything um and kind of how do i say this get away with it yeah like it's not suspicious that they're like it's kind of plays into that kind of trope of just they're just really good friends even if like maybe they're lovers if it's two women together they're always just really good friends right they're like gal pals yeah there's a that there's that i think that stigma runs through like all three that stigma is just very very widely accepted that two women together they can't possibly be gay. They have to just be good friends. And I think in a lot of societies where maybe there is a lot more, like, female intimacy, mm-hmm. 
that goes under the radar a lot more when one's younger. I feel like us coming from the US, we're, we're almost taught to just not have any intimacy. Uh, I, I think that's something I had to learn uh, in the sense of um, being like even platonically like intimate. Um, I think it's really interesting because the name like Rafiki in Swahili it means it means friend and it's it's basically a way to for partners in same-sex relationships to introduce one another as as a friend. But in a lot of circumstances, it's obviously not, you know, more than just a friend, but it's to have that sort of kind of low profile. I would, yeah, I'd also say that with, um, with like their blooming friendship, which was really strengthened, they also had this like super vigilant surveillance like community watching over them. And people do start to catch on that maybe they are not more oh, than yeah. friends, but maybe they are in a relationship or accept or like pursuing a relationship between the two of them you know like the owners of the that one restaurant they go to a lot where they get like cokes yeah and like the the waitress is always like the mm. gossipy they're so gossipy. they're so gossipy and they're like mm. i feel like we we can relate to that being in and like living in chile where that also happens that you have like the yeah, the sapa, <laughs> like the yeah, the sapa, <laughs> who's just like, mm, I'm gonna not mind my own business. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm making this my business now. Yep. So yeah, basically, there's a lot of, kind of as as they start to get to know each other and have that sense of intimacy and basically kind of carving out their own space, um, they they get caught and um and they 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 suffer they suffer violence they suffer heavy violence and it's filmed in a way where as a viewer you're very stressed to watch it yeah i was watching it and i was like you know really stressed because you don't know the outcome and you also realize that this is depicting a reality for so many people that I feel like the violence that they that they experience in both homophobia and misogyny um, is maybe even just how do I say maybe not even like as violent as it typically could be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I did to add some context to kind of. Uh, highlight what is the state of LGBTQI rights in Kenya. Um, it is illegal. It's been illegal since 1897. Um, the penal statute is anything anywhere from five years to 14 years, depending on the degree. Um, so whether it's like according to them, like gross indecency, sodomy. Um, so there's, it's something that obviously by law, um, there, um, one has to be very careful. Um, there's definitely a lot of, and from what we noticed when we were researching the film, there was definitely 
um, public support that are growing and a lot of small projects that are working to protect these types of um, the, the, these rights. Um, but for example, there's no, there's no protection against discrimination uh, on basis of sexual orientation and, and, and gender identity. So hate crime wouldn't be considered a hate crime, for example. Uh, to yeah to fight to assault on paper it's not technically yeah. a, a hate crime because there are no laws that protect LGBTQI people and even the director herself uh, had to basically fight with the Kenyan government she so she sued the Kenyan government um, so she could screen Rafiki in her home country while while most of the production and, and this is something that i really enjoyed about the film the more i got to understand what the kind of the background of this because i think at first the whole technicolor aspect uh it took i sometimes felt like it distracted from the gravity of the the film and that some of the more kind of mature elements but then the more i started kind of reading into it and understanding where kind of the art direction comes from, understanding that this is part of a larger movement of uh, queer Kenyan underground um, artists um, and really highlighting that aspect through the clothes, textiles, color and everything. I don't know. I, I like really started enjoying it. More. Yeah, I really enjoyed the art direction. I thought it was very, very beautiful. The lighting is just really nice um what i was gonna say was we were talking about this earlier where this film was banned in kenya this band because they have such strict laws against portrayals of um homosexual behavior or tendencies in in media um and that the filmmaker really had to fight for this to be yeah. screened in Kenya for at least seven days so that it could be considered an entry into the best like international film category of the Oscars, of the Academy Awards. Because that's part of the Academy Awards um, rule is that a foreign film has to be screened in their respective country for at least seven days. Which is... I think that that's a the week. dumbest rule, personally. A week. I think it doesn't really... Because we can talk about the fact that a lot of countries have really high censorship yeah. when it comes to their artistry. We were just viewing this with the Battle of Chile that had been censored in Chile since it's since it's making and only until last week was it act actively like screened in Chile legally yeah and this is a film that has to do with the dictatorship and the coup in Chile so this like really and it's a documentary and you know what kind of um, recognition it would have gotten in Chile, but instead it was more of an acclaimed documentary, like, and a lot of, like, um, 
I guess, yeah. for lack of a better term, like foreign contexts, like in the U.S. and Europe. Or just like in a lot of, I think a lot of African like film, especially, I mean, this is, this is to add context, it's not, this is not the first LGBTQI film that in, in, within the continent. Um, and there have been predecessors, but they've never, the majority of them have never been screened in their home countries. I think it's such um, a loss for the people of that country to not be able to view something like that in a space like a movie theater or any kind of like micro cinema. Because I feel like those experiences are super important for a community to watch something and have that experience together. So for the fact that like for this film, there were only there was only a week where it was screened. Yeah. And I'm sure not screened widely. I don't know what the the rules are against like where it can be screened within the country, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, in terms of in terms of release um, it definitely might have, it definitely had to have been like more of a limited release, but I think, I think it is an absolute loss because I think especially, and one of the things that I feel like this, this whole, all of these three films, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in House of Hummingbird, is this, the aspect of, of just in general, um, female intimacy, just intimacy, uh, in, in general and, and unpacking intimacy uh and uh, an attraction um i think for a lot of a lot of probably young queer girls who have gone through this and have trying to decipher whether this is like natural to have this af affection for uh another woman or not or another girl or not um i think that that's something that having films like this is really important to help unpack that, um, I remember that scene in 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 But I'm a Cheerleader, where she thought she was there. They talked about basically like the proof, the burden of proof that she was a lesbian to Megan the Cheerleader, and there's like Im there they'll be they'll show images of her of like cheerleader skirts go up because she's a cheerleader so she would like toss people and stuff like that and she was she she like innocently said she's like oh i just thought every girl thought about that. i thought every girl thought other girls were really pretty i i dude i totally thought that i totally oh, me thought, too like i totally absolutely thought, like i totally thought it would be like fine to like cuddle with other uh, like girls and like hold them and stuff like that and it was when you're when you're like a younger kid, yeah. yeah and then there's like a point that you know it's no longer accepted you have to unpack that i remember for me growing up being like a kid who was really confused about my sexuality at a really young age yeah and like really scared of it to a point where like I didn't really like come out as a queer woman until much later on because I just grew up with a lot of this narrative around like, oh, like queer women are gross. Like queer women are, that's wrong. Somehow that was more wrong than like, I never really heard the same remarks around gay men. Yeah. Gay cis men specifically. I always... I remember very specific comments around, like, lesbians. 
that lesbians are gross. Or I remember this one time stupid comment from a little boy when I was a little girl about like, oh, if you think like girls are pretty, then you're gay and that's disgusting. And I always like internalize those comments as like a pretty impressionable kid. Um, always thinking like, oh, well, I think those things. Yeah. Like, I think that these girls are pretty or I'm attracted to this girl. Does that make me disgusting? And then I internalized all of that sort of like hate. And yeah, it took me a long time to unpack that kind of thing. We are really, I, I mean, I, again, I really feel like this is a cultural thing coming from the U.S. I think that we are terrible at the way we think of platon like any type of, I would say, non-sexual relationship, you know, and, and like exploring intimacy and, and, and like expanding intimacy. I think we suck at it like yeah a lot of western places suck at it and i think that's what's really interesting about rafiki and also this the last film we'll talk about now which is house of hummingbird um house of hummingbird came around roughly the same time 2018 um was directed and written by kim bora uh, um feature film by the way like the the first film that she made that's a feature. It's a feature film, and it's, but it's it's interesting because she made a short, um, called the recorder exam. Yeah, I discovered the recorder exam on movie. Shout out to movie. Shout out to movie where you know we wouldn't mind a sponsor. Yeah, one day. yeah, that would be an awesome. We have a widget. Of we have a widget. <laughs> I'm a big movie fan. Anyway, I'm not gonna advertise them, but. It did, because they have this short called uh, The Recorder Exam mm -hmm. on movie, and it's by Kimbora, and it's a short, uh, like 25 minutes. Absolutely recommend it. It's just, it's really, really, really dense. There are a lot of layers to it, and I feel like it's a prequel to House of Hummingbird. Basically, House of Hummingbird um, is about a an adolescent young girl i think she what is like 13 14 years old 14 she's in the eighth grade her name is uni yeah and so and they follow her life in south korea where her parents are store owners of this what do they do they like make so they're they're to to they're work it's working class so to kind of give context this is korea in the mid 90s so this is right. a korea within a crossroads starting to become a quickly developing um south korea becoming a developing country mm -hmm. um and her parents work what we would still be like considered i think when the film even started as like a very laborious working class role in a basically they create rice noodles and they have their cakes. it's a family business and they have their kids also work in the in the business um after school and so and she also has two siblings an older sister and an older brother and I'd like to talk about that more, like the relationship that she has with her sister. I feel like that is something that I relate to a lot. 
mm-hmm. um, as someone who grew up with an older sister who was like mildly re- rebellious growing up. Um, and me being sort of like a really straight-laced kind of kid when I was younger. It, and repressed, but also like just kind of like followed the rules, didn't make a lot of noise, you so, know? So they kind of discussed like the family structure. So you have the oldest sister, like the, so in, the, in the family, you have uh, the older sister that she is not attending university. She's basically working, helping with her parents and like going out. Um, you have the brother that's like the legacy child. They're like putting all of the, the parents are putting all of the eggs on him on, in his basket. So they basically. really they coddle him and like really cater to him studying, having his time to study and like there are scenes where he is very violent towards his sister and she has to also cater to him. There's that pressure for her to also, you know, like tend to his needs or give him space to study and everything like that. Otherwise there will be really violent consequences. And then you have Inyi. Uh, Inyi is, she's 14 and she's not, I think what's really interesting about her is that she's not, like, in the sense, like, her... She's not trying to be academically, like, gifted or anything, but she is fairly creative. She's, she she loves drawing. She loves kind of imagining just, like, just different worlds, uh, basically, around her. And... Um, and I think she's, she, she, what I enjoy about her is that she really is like, believes like in the kind of fluidity of the world and just exploring it. She's certainly a visual person. Yeah. Like she certainly, she gives me big Pisces, Pisces energy because <laughs> yeah. she's a big dreamer. Like she kind of just lives in her own dreamscapes. And so a lot of the film are like these vignettes where we see it from her perspective of like, the trees kind of moving in the wind and like the sun peeking through leaves and um, these really beautiful spaces that she goes to that are sort of like secret and underground. Um, she's a big like, in Spanish, um, Chile we say like callejero. Oh, she like is always on the streets. Like she's yeah. always just like exploring, wandering around. And um, yeah, that's sort of where she meets the people that she, you know, has these relationships with we sort of see her in the beginning like kind of going out with this boy holding hands in public like flirty and innocence yeah she she's i think i would say that i think her motivation um is she's i think she's like wandering for love like she wants love she's i think she's craving that intimacy that's not really there in the household i mean we really see the parents and i i see this as a very human thing for her parents to really be like fully focused on success survival and they hustle through everything because they have to because this is a really like shifting time in South Korea and they have to keep up they have to you know survive in this world and so they really make a lot of emotional and 
intimate sacrifices. They don't really show intimacy or they don't really show like affection with their with their children. Like Inu's always sort of like you know those scenes with her and her mother? Oh yeah. That are just like just the two of them, very quiet, very, very like intimate. But her mother is so withdrawn, so withholding, so just like tired from the day. Yeah. Like tired, her back hurts, her feet hurt. And like, and you like tends to her in a physical sense to like, you know, put those massage pads on her back or like bring her food or like, you know, massage her back. And those are like the little scenes that we do get into the relationship in an affectionate sense because there isn't any sort of like, I'm proud of you. Good job. Like, I love you. There's nothing like that. Yeah. I think we, I think that's, we always put that sort of kind of like, like us lens on it. Cause I think we get a lot of verbal affirmation all the time. Like, yeah, I also grew up with a Chilean mom who is very verbally like, I love yous and all that. See, like, I, 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 I grew up, like, similar to this in the sense that my, my family expressed, like, their care for me. And, and I think in, in, in the same in Uni's case, like, you can tell that the parents care for her. Like, when she has that, she gets sick and they want to take her to, like, the best doctor. Hospital, yeah. The best doctor and the best hospital. And the fact that they pay for this, like, cram school which is basically like intensive learning on certain subjects because uh they have these national exams to go to university that were really important um they want the best for her they want the best for her they feed her obviously but they they, do the bare minimum but they also do more than just keeping her alive like they want her to succeed they want her to get out of this cycle yeah, and I think there's a lot of, I think, like, the scene, for example, you mentioned the scene that she, like, tends for her mom, and she mentions in that scene, she, the mom has a brother, Uni's uncle, who passes away, and she mentions at one point the mom, how she gave up, like, so many things um, so that her brother could go to school, and how she kind of has that manifestation of, of, of loss of what could have been. She kind of lives in that reality of like, what could I have done? But instead I had to give it up. So one person in the family could go. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's really just very human to me, but within its depiction of, of queer relationships. So as, as Gato mentioned, she starts this this little you know I, I say he's like a little fuck boy but i have to understand he's 14 and they're like, all like that at they're, 14, they're, trust me. They're, they're, they're all like that at 29 too <laughs> i understand the fleetingness of of middle school sucked it really sucked yeah like middle school like in the beginning of high school really sucked but she anyways and he gets um meets this girl um and then also start seeing her on her many adventures she goes to a like an underground kind of club yeah. but for kids yeah where they like dance and there's neon lights and like i wish we had that growing up 
You know that scene in the movie that's like a not a very good movie, um, Babel, where Tom Cruise or no, it's Brad Pitt and like they go through, like the girl in Japan. I I never. You saw never it. saw it? No. Oh, it's, gonna... it's all right. It's not like it's okay. It's like, it's like the international crash. I really thought you were going to say it's like the International House of Pancakes. And I was like, I really want some IHOP right now. I'm we'll cut this out. IHOP. No, we won't. This is part of it. But um, no, there's the scene where like she's dancing and like yeah. there's like heavy music and yeah. like, so she meets, so you meets this girl and this girl is so clearly interested in her. She's so like, she catches her eye they, like, have this flirtatious, really innocent moment mm-hmm. together. They, like, exchange phone numbers. And and then we see them sort of exploring, like, going out. And it's all just, like, very much 14-year-olds hanging out, going out. They're like, trying to be, like, romantic in the way that they can. There's no, like, you know how, like, in, like, for example, in, um, but I'm a cheerleader. I think like the the connection between Megan and Graham was like so like monolithic and so like wow. But I feel like here it addresses the more kind of fluidity. It's like very softer in that sense. Like oh, they just like hang out and they hold hands, and, and they like are interested in each other. They're like curious about each other, and it goes beyond just like how we were talking about female friendship and this portrayal of female friendship. Um, this is so clearly as a viewer, you're like, oh, they're like romantically interested in each other. It's very obvious. Um, and it's very sweet. Yeah. There's no sense where I'm like, this is exploitative. Like, it's always just so sweet, like so innocent. And then we see these two, these two girls, um, briefly, like they have a very brief relationship. And then, yeah, it's a brief relationship. I think it's, you know, one that ends in a little bit of uh, heartbreak on Uni's part. Um, but around that time, there's like, an, there's another influence that comes into her life. Um, who is um, Kim Jong-ji, um, who is her Chinese cram teacher. Uh, Mandarin cram teacher. So uh, Kim Jong-ji is a woman in her 20s. I would say 20s. Like she's taking a break from university. And she she's definitely not your typical, I would say. Like, like in the hyper sense feminine. Hyper feminine. Like she is definitely dresses in some aspects Maybe a little bit more masculine, androgynous. Um, She's super sort of super non-nonsense. She's She's very like timid, but she's also like, she's a really like comforting energy. I always like found the scenes to be like, I would hang out with her. Yeah. She just seems really chill, but also very serious. And yeah, I think she's also like going through, also going through a process of like what, to do with her life and and wandering and finding intimacy and they build a very beautiful relationship um and there's definitely uh i would say like oh i say i always say this but there's a there's a romantic element in it but not in this way that is sexualized and i think 
that's also beautiful in the in the sense that of how we rethink platonic relationships more than anything i would say it's not because that could fall into some territory that might not be like that might be like I mean, when I mean, no, 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 no. When I guess what I'm saying, what I mean in terms of romantic is that there's a sense of romanticism, especially from yeah. Uni's part. Yeah, from yeah. Uni's part, not from. It's not like the they're teacher. attracted to each other. It's not like that. But I think that, um, and I think it's, it's super like important to make that understanding that it's even more Kim, of like a mentorship. Kim Jong Yi was very aware of the power dynamic. I mm-hmm. think, but. The film is from the lens of Unis, so Uni does puts that romanticism and like this idolization of this teacher. That's important to understand is that we see all of this film through the lens, through the perspective of this fourteen-year-old girl, and so when we see her as like this kind of character study we see the film as that, mm-hmm. then we do have to understand that when we're talking about these relationships, they are from the perspective of this girl. Yeah. So, like you were saying, that does make a lot of sense. What I was saying was, like, I see it more as, like, a mentorship yeah. from an outside perspective because she does really sort of look up to her. To her. Like, oh, yeah. she does look up to her. She thinks she's cool, like, she looks forward to going to class, and then, um, and then, yeah, we don't really see a big character study with, with King Jamni, but we do see it more as this blossoming, like, friendship between, an intergenerational friendship. Yeah, I think, I think there's also, I, I, I would argue that I think there is a little bit of not, I wouldn't say character development with Kim Jong-gi. We don't see her arc necessarily. But I think what is really interesting is that it, it starts going into kind of the collective. Because even though it's from the eyes, the queerness and, and these experiences come from the eyes of Uni, um, we also see that Dongji is kind of at a crossroads with her life. She dropped out of university. She kind of just like flutters around. That's what at least like the headmaster in the school says. I feel like like she's seen as like this cautionary tale. Yeah, she's like a she's like a millennial. She's like she's like me. She's like a millennial. Like we don't know what the fuck we're doing. She's like me. Like you know, kind of floating through things, figuring shit out. It's a really relatable character. And I, and also I think she's also like a by, she's also a byproduct of the society in the sense that the that same level of of misogyny towards women, especially women that don't fit a certain mold, um, like them, um, are there. It's often like responded with with violence. I the scene for example with when Dongji. And you need talk about these like family dynamics and like mm-hmm. that the brother um, would hit her. I think like and then Jungji says mentions like the importance of not um, not letting like her brother hit her or touch her or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. 
what is there more to say? Like, I feel like House of Hummingbird is a such um, layered film. I mean, we also, we don't want to give away any spoilers because I feel like the spoilers are really what create depth. Um, the other thing is that this character, um, Uni is just like such a, and it sounds corny, but like she's such a dreamer, like she's such a seeing things in a really artistic, creative way. The art direction reflects that, the music, the mise-en-scene, like they all really reflect that sort of vibe of just vignettes of someone's life and the people who sort of weave through that life too. So that's why we don't really see an arc with, Kim Jong-yi or with her friend or with these this girl that she likes or with her this yeah. boy she likes because we see this character study specifically of Nyi and like how she kind of makes relationships happen and it, and it's a huge coming of age film because we do see a huge character development with her I think that's what I, I, I enjoy about and um, Kim, Kim Bora, she, she mentions that her influence for this film uh, was this film by Edward Young called Yi that came out in the early 2000s. It's also very similar in the sense that it's a character study that goes through sweeping vignettes. Um, but these also sweeping vignettes are vignettes of of Taiwanese society in the case of Yi and House of Hummingbird. I, we see that as well. It's not just a coming of age for this queer fourteen year old girl. It's this coming of age for uh, a nation, a society, uh, for Korea that's at this crossroads between development and humanity. Um, and what does that mean and how to you know kind of bridge the two mm -hmm. yeah I mean a big part of this film is also the family dynamic the family dynamic is very complicated in terms of what it means to be a good or a bad parent like the parenting I don't want to impose any of my own opinions on it I just see them as humans getting through, like, moving through these, like, obstacles in the best way that they can with what they have. Um, I mean, they really kind of, like, throw her out into the world. Like, she really does have to explore things on her own a lot. There are... What I like about this movie is it reminds me a lot of Fish Tank in the sense yeah. that in Fish Tank by Andrea Arnold... Um, so it's a film from England where we do see this character study with this young girl and we do literally follow her around and whatever she gets into. We just kind of follow her around. And in Fish Tank, the camera is literally behind her, following her. We're walking with her, yeah. you know? And it's the same in House of Hummingbird where we do just sort of follow her into what she gets into. And it's all from her perspective, and we're just like fly on flies on the wall. I speaking of that, I I love the the production, like the production design of this film is really great when you understand uh, 
that this is soul. This is soul in the 80s, like 80s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Soul does not look like that anymore. It does not look like a lot of green. Um, it's one of the it's one of the densest cities in, in in the world. So to be able to kind of design this space that came out of it's both came out of the '90s, but also if you look at it, it's, it there's a timeless uh, timelessness aspect of it. Yeah. Um, even the I was like watching an interview with Kim Bora, and she said that the that specific yellow Benetton backpack. Uh huh. That's like something that all the little like girls wanted in Korea at the time, and you she know? had to search everywhere for the backpack. I'm sure the details are so good, so so fascinating, and it's like I think that's something that I want to watch over and over again about this film is to is kind of. Um, not only getting that design, but I think also understanding the cultural nuances, um, especially when it comes to um, the intimacy, um, the queerness with between the girls. Because I think Kim Kim Boris mentions a lot about that of like how intimacy is interpreted. Yeah, and it's also I think that what House of Hummingbird really kind of sets it apart from a lot of other queer films is that this isn't the main plot like I said like this is more yeah. of like um, a character study in a vignette of like what she gets into and so this this relationship that she has with this other girl is merely just one section of that one section of like the various things that she goes through and it's not made to be any type of sensationalized experience it's just an experience just like any of the other experiences that she has i really appreciated that um because that's how life works like we put importance and we sensationalize these relationships that people have these um identities that we have when in reality they just exist and they just are that's ooh, that's that's really good. That's really deep, dude. No, because like, <laughs> no, because like I noticed that in in, but I'm a cheerleader because you know how we, we get from this like hyper stylized, like in in the in the conversion. I'm saying like in the conversion camp, you see this like highly stylized like blue and that kind of like Pepto Bismol pink, pink and oh, stuff yeah. like that. But then as soon as they go to the like alternative camp or like the bar. Everything is so much more muted, and I feel like even the shots themselves, like I feel like even like like the way Jamie Baba was doing it, were much more uh, naturalized. Yeah. No, it just felt like a regular bar. Yeah, like I felt like the 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 photography was was very different to kind of evoke that sort of as you mentioned, kind of vignette-esque. Anyways, so to wrap it up. Next episode, we're going to be continuing to talk about... With a set of three new films to yeah. talk about. Um, we have a few ideas. Um, we'll be discussing them, but it'd be really cool for those who listen if y'all have any recommendations of... I've gotten a few from friends. And yeah? Yeah, I think we have a running list of the films that we're going to talk about and like the ones we already have talked about. 
Um, but if you have more that you would like to explore with us, let us know. And we can do, oh, we should do like a letterbox list too. We, and like show it to people. Yeah. Yeah. So if y'all like need to find where the films are or like information, we can, we'll do like a list. Yeah. A playlist. I think this could be a really cool, like just kind of bonding activity for people who are really into movies and, and also really into gay stuff. <laughs> letterbox follow us, sponsor us. Yeah. Right. I know. Movie letterbox. Anyway, this podcast was sponsored by Squarespace. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we'll see you all next week or next month. Next month, yeah, probably next month. Yeah, we'll see y'all soon. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. the funnel of love I tried and I tried to run and hide I even tried to run away you just can't run from the funnel of love it's bound to get you some